Well, uh, a long time ago, let me begin with a story. A long time ago, I was playing football. This was back in my junior high days, so there was a lot of high-caliber footballing going on uh, during this in Bowie, Texas. Let me tell you about it. And um, it was about halftime. I dropped back to throw a pass, and I got hit on one side. And I think the play before, my, my shoulder pad kind of got lifted up over here, but we were kind of hurrying because it was right before half, and so I didn't have time to fix it because we were trying to, to get one last play, a Hail Mary to the end of the end zone. And um, all that I saw were two linebackers coming up basically untouched as I was dropping back. And he said, I said, you know what? It's not worth it. I, I, I don't want an, an INT on my uh, stats, you know, my eighth grade stats that I was keeping up in my room. And um, so I'm just gonna take the sack. And whenever I took the sack, they both hit me on one side and I fell over on the other side. And my shoulder, I don't know what happened, but it, it, it was bad. It snapped, uh, bad, bad news bears. And so they, uh, my parents actually took me to uh, the hospital. They, my, my coach, uh, Coach Tuggle, I remember his name. He said, son, you want me to just pop that right back in place here, here in a little bit? And I was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good, Coach Tuggle. You know, I think I'm just gonna go to the hospital. Good news is because it was like broken and dislocated, all sorts of stuff. But it, it, was, it was terrible. But let, let me tell you the worst part of all of this. This is really what I remember, is I remember during the injury and the recovery that took a long, long time, was just the long sleepless nights. I could, I could not rest because of this injury. All the swelling went down to my elbow. Everyone that's ever had a sling uh, that you, in a shoulder injury, you know that everything just goes right to this one point. And because of the inflammation, it was miserable. It was absolutely miserable. I could, I could not sleep for weeks on end. Why? Because my elbow hurt. Nothing happened to my elbow but it was just because of the inflammation and it was terrible. And I tell you this story because of this, because of this, until we get healing, there is really no rest. And that is true not just of our physical bodies, that is true of our spiritual bodies as well, of who we are, this, our soul. Until we get the healing of the soul, there is no Sabbath rest. There is no ultimate rest of the soul. Uh, and I say, share all of that because this is what we see here in our passage today that John Mark read to us. Jesus was healing on the day of rest. He was healing on the Sabbath. How dare he, said the, said the Jewish leaders. How dare he do this blasphemous thing to where this is the day of rest. You weren't supposed to work and here the healer is healing. The healer is healing on this day. And so the, the Jewish leaders were absolutely enraged at this fact because they, they, they couldn't understand why someone would try to usurp their authority because they were the ones that were holding the rules and the regulation of, of, the, uh, of the Sabbath day. And so the conflict of, of the Sabbath arises and it's really one of the very first conflicts that Jesus has in his public ministry. And as John Mark read, read to us, this is the reason that the Jewish leaders began to persecute Jesus. It's not because of what he was doing. Uh, in fact, they probably liked what he was doing to a certain extent. It's like, oh man, there's a healer. I mean, this is, this is amazing. And we may, never heard of this. This has to be the works of God, as Nicodemus would go on to say, um, as one of the Jewish leaders. But they hated that, they, uh, they hated that Jesus was uh, usurping their authority over the Sabbath regulations that they, they put around 
the, law, uh, the fourth commandment, which is on the Sabbath day you shall rest. So what do we see here? What do we see here in this passage? Let, let's give a little commentary here. There's an invalid that was there for a very long time. A very long time. Jesus knew it. There was a lot of invalids around this period or, or around this pool during this time period. And Jesus walked up to one man amidst many of them, and he asked them a very simple question. Now they were all surrounding this pool because they believed that this pool had some healing powers. We see this all the way back in um, in verse seven. In verse seven, the sick man answered him, "Sir, I have no one to put me in this pool when the water is stirred up, and while another goes down, they step down before me." Uh, probably so- several of y'all have seen the chosen, and the chosen has already done this scene and actually gives a, a great and beautiful visual of what's going on uh, during this time. And you see the urgency in the actor's eyes whenever he says, "They go down before me, and I cannot be healed." And you say, well, how, were they, how was he going to be healed? Well, if you notice that John Mark read 18 verses, but he actually only read 17 verses. That's because if you look in your ESV Bible, if you're following along with us, which we um, typically on, um, only read in, uh, passages from the Bible from the ESV, uh, it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. And you say, Cody, what is, is that a typo? No, it's not, it's not a typo. Uh, this is something that, uh, let me give kind of a, uh, a side talking about the historicity of the word of God. And so the, the, the primary way that the Bible was written was in the, the English of Koine Greek. And there is a ton, over 5,000, 5,000 verses, or 5,000 different manuscripts rather of the New Testament passages in Koine Greek. This is an embarrassment of riches, all scholars say. Uh, the, 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 second, uh, the second work of antiquity that we trust, which is the, the Iliad, was written about 500, or, or I think close to a thousand years, I think 750 years after, um, after the story of the Iliad actually happened, and there's only 700 manuscripts of this. And, and all that to say is there is an amazing wealth that we get from um, looking back at ancient texts to get our English translation today. And the reason why the ESV has gone from verse five, or gone rather from verse three to verse five is this, is the earliest, most reliable, most complete works of Koine Greek manuscripts that we have, verse four was not in there. Verse four was not in there. It is in the uh, old, if, you're, if you have a King James Bible in front of you, it has verse four. Or if you have a Bible app and you look at the King James, it, it's, uh, there is a verse four. And let me tell you what verse four says. Uh, according to the King James, it says this. For an angel went down at a certain at a certain season into the pool and troubled the waters. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water stepped in, was made whole without, uh, uh, with, made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And so uh, what scholars say is most likely they were giving commentary on what the myth of the day around in the pool of um, Bethsaida was and didn't necessarily represent the actual words of God to where there was an angel that was going in and stirring up these waters. 
Does that make sense? And so that uh, you can trust your Bible. You can really trust your Bible, even in its English form. But it is important to know that people before us have gone, gone through, parsed out the Greek, and, and try to give us the most reliable text of the um, of the New Testament. So all that as an aside to, to kind of give clarity around what uh, this invalid was talking about in verse seven. Sir, I have no one. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up because they thought it had healing powers from an angel. They thought it had healing powers from, from the angel. And so what do we see? What do we see in our text? What do we see in our text? Jesus looks at him and he said, and whenever he saw him lying there for a very long time, he asked this question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Well, obviously he wanted to be healed. He wanted to be healed. He wanted to be healed by the pool. That's why he was sitting at the pool. But Jesus said, hey, there's no healing here. There's absolutely no healing here. I'm asking you right now, do you want to be healed truly? Do you want to be healed completely? And that the answer is obvious. And what's interesting that, that we need to parse out from this text today is that this man gave zero evidence of faith. He gave zero evidence of faith. Jesus was the one that pursued him all the way. There was a bunch of invalids all around this pool. He walked up to one person who didn't even have faith in Jesus, didn't even know who he was. He pursued him and said, you're mine. Do you wanna be healed right now? And he did it. That is good news for us. And that tells us two things about Jesus. It tells us, number, uh, number one, that Jesus comes to you and I because we are needy. He doesn't come to us whenever we're trying to, uh, to, uh, to bolster up a certain amount of moral code, to bolster up a certain amount of uh, a moral superiority. He doesn't come to us whenever we start taking one step towards him. No, he finds us whenever we're sick and really needy, and he does all the pursuing. He does all the pursuing the same way that he pursued, he pursued this man. And second, he, he, he comes to us whenever we recognize that this need for a savior, this need for a savior is so, so, so crucial. So, so crucial and is counterintuitive to what he was actually trusting in. You see, this guy was trusting in something false. He was trusting in a lie. He was trusting in something that wasn't actually going to help him. And in verse, um, verse eight, all he had to do was recognize that he was trusting in something other than God himself. Look what verse eight says. As soon as he gave a, a kind of a, a reply to Jesus, Jesus said to him, just get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he looked and he took up his bed, just as he said, and he walked. He walked. And what's important about this is this might seem like it's just kind of a one-off one act of benevolence, right? Just a, a, a drive-by healing, if you will. Jesus kind of walked by him and just said, oh, uh, yeah, you, healed. And then he just darts away, right? He slips into the crowd. Is that, is that what's going on? Well, no, let's, let's go further back. In verse 14, look what it says. After Jesus found him in the temple, he said to them, see, you're well. He circles back. He circles back to the same guy and says, go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. You see, Jesus never heals. He never heals just to heal. He always heals to promote your holiness, 
Jesus doesn't heal just to heal you. He, he, he heals you to promote your flourishing, to promote your holiness, to promote your freedom in Christ, to choose virtue and to choose him. You see, Jesus loves you. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Uh, I sing that uh, quite often with a six, four, and two-year-old. Uh, I won't sing it right now, but um, we could sing it later, uh, maybe as a song of response. But what that means in part is he doesn't just care about your life here. He cares about your life to come. He cares about your soul. He cares about your holiness. That's why he says, see you are well. Now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Stop sinning. My aim in healing your body is ultimately to get to your soul. I'm doing something miraculous in you so that something will happen to your soul. See, I've given you a gift. It's free. That came first, but then I have a commandment for you. You see, the gospel is laid out kind of in the, the story, the story of the Exodus. If you were here with us la- uh, a, a year ago last year, in 2021, which is kind of weird to say, I can't believe it's 2022, we went through the book of Exodus. And if you notice throughout the book of Exodus that God saved the people out of slavery after, or he saved them before he sent them to Mount Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments. He, he let them pass through, through the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea. He, did, he vanquished their enemies. He healed them. He rescued them from their slavery before, before he gave them the commandments of the law. You see, all other religions do this. They say, if you obey the commandments of the law, whatever they are, Confucius, you know, Hindu, uh, Hindu, uh, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, whatever, if you obey the tenets of this religion well enough, then maybe God or the gods, or uh, the incarnation, or whatever it is, will accept you. Maybe you will flourish after that. Christianity turns that on its head. It heals you, and then it gives you rest. It saves you, and then it gives you commandments. And this is what Jesus is, is doing. It, it, he, he's trying to show this man that, look, you didn't earn this. You weren't looking for me. I came here for you. Now that I've healed you, I want to wake you up to life Life with me. And life with me means freedom. And not freedom in, in the uh, postmodern uh, 2022 secular way to where we think, oh, freedom means that we can go and do however we want and God doesn't care. No, freedom means you can choose virtue for the first time. Freedom means you can choose character. Freedom means you can actually walk in the ways that God has called you to walk. Freedom means resurrection life to where because of the resurrection of Christ, you can walk in the ways that he calls you to walk. See, before you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were walking dead. You're a dead man walking, you're a dead woman walking, and you had no ability to choose which was, what was virtuous. C.S. Lewis said that all that we did, all that we did before Christ, you know what it, what it is? We only did things for selfish purposes. So even our good deeds were done with selfish intent. Which, if you think about it, if you think about it, if you're doing anything for selfish intent, is that really obeying the commandments or the laws of God, which is to love God with all that you are and to love others as yourself? No, no, you're doing it because you love yourself and it's selfish intent. And so what, the, um, what freedom in Christ actually gives you the ability to do is to choose to obey and to walk with God. See, this is really, this is really good news. 
This is really good news because we need to understand that whenever we walk and enter into a connection with Christ, whenever we have this resurrection life, we, uh, what we find is, is that it begins, and this is gonna sound silly, it begins, it ends, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. Jesus came to us whenever we were helpless, whenever we were absolutely helpless, and he demands that, he demands to us, just like he demanded this man, stop trusting in what is false and turn to what is true. Stop trusting in what is false and turn to what is true. That is the beginning of faith. Remember last week, we, we talked about how, how faith grows and faith matures um, through, through really thinking, but it doesn't start that way. The spark of it is answering the call of Jesus, responding to his grace, reaching out to you. And uh, this is extremely personal because I feel like this is how I came to turn, to turn to Jesus for the first time. Whenever I, uh, uh, my parents raised me in church and, and, and they brought me up, they brought me up in the instructions and the disciplines of the Lord and I was so thankful for that. Um, but they could, what they could not do in my heart is they could not, is they could not produce life, which is truly life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only Jesus' pursuit could do that. And when the, what happened to me, whenever I was a freshman at Texas Tech University, sitting in my dorm room, sad and, and, and upset that I was no longer that studly eighth grade quarterback anymore, you know? Uh, I, I was no longer um, the cool kid, cool kid on campus because Texas Tech, 40,000 students, they don't care who you are. They don't care. High school students, wait, uh, look at me. Uh, whenever you go to college, no one cares about you, okay? That's, that's a harsh reality, but you, need to, you, need, you just need to accept it now. No one cares, all right? Everyone's all following that first commandment where it's all, just all about self, okay? And in that loathing in my own self-pity, realizing that I had built, I built my kingdom on straw, and on sand, and on nothing, and on um, self-aggrandizement, and on trying to make myself the best I could be, it all came crumbling apart the very first week that I was there, and I turned to God and said, God, I've been trusting in something that is not true. Help. And that's how he saved me. That's how, that, that's how I responded to the pursuit. He was ever before me, but I had to finally stop trusting in everything that I was trusting in and just fall forward. Fall forward and fall, um, fall directly on him. And this is what Jesus is demanding of this invalid. He's just like, you're trusting, you're trusting in something else to make you well. I can make you well. Fall forward. Just fall forward. Stop trusting in what is false and start looking to what, to what I have for you. And what's interesting about this is whenever he was healed, he was able, or uh, we don't actually know about this guy. Um, this, is one of the, this is one of the open-ended stories to where I think John was kind of presenting this as an evangelistic passage to say, are you gonna respond appropriately? To everyone that was reading this years, years later, they're gonna say, how are you gonna respond to the offering of Jesus' healing in your life? Are you gonna fall forward? Are you gonna go and repent and sin no more? Or are you gonna look at the grace that God has offered to mankind and say, mm, seems like the things that I'm trusting in are getting me, getting me by just okay. And so we don't actually know. McKinley, we don't know, okay? We don't know how this, how this guy responded, but this is what we do see, is once he was healed, he was offered the invitation into Jesus's rest. 
He was offered an invitation into the Sabbath. And this is, what, uh, this is what's highly controversial within our passage today. What's highly controversial is, is all the Jewish leaders said, what is this guy doing? If he, if he wants to be a healer, he can do that Sunday through Friday. Why is he waiting on the Sabbath? Why is he doing it now? How dare he try to, do, try to do this thing? And they got mad because of one of the regulations that they were putting, or putting around the Sabbath. See, it's hard for us to understand the Old Testament law. We think that we have been set free from the Old Testament law a lot of times because that vernacular is kind of going around. But let me kind of help us understand that there's three different sections of the Old Testament law. Three different sections. Two of which was fulfilled in Christ and one which we're still bound to today. This is very important if we're gonna understand what freedom and walking in Christ actually means. All right, the first section of the law was the civil, the civil section of the law. This was kind of uh, the nation of Israel was a nation, which means that some of the laws that were wrapped up and explained to us in the Old Testament were laws of their civil authority, were laws of their government, of how they were supposed to order the ways that they were to, to live and operate and, and live in civil society. It was a, it was a kingdom that was supposed to be um, built on the, the righteousness of God. And they, so there's, um, there's talk about uh, mercy and there's talking about justice and caring for the poor and all of these things uh, that are part of the civil, civil law that's wrapped up uh, in the Old Testament. But that's, that leads me to number two. And there's also ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws of what made a person clean. These were things, these were laws to get rid of sin. And so think of the sacrificial system. Think of uh, Jesus being the, the lamb of God and how many lambs were slain for the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament uh, to, to the Israelite nation and all the God fears that they brought into their society. So there's a civil law, there's a ceremonial law, and then the thing that we're bound to today, which is the moral law. The New Testament never, the New Testament never abolishes anything in the moral law from the Old Testament. So the, the moral standings in the Old Testament are still in, in, in enacted today in the New Testament, okay? And so still enacted today with our life with Christ. But what Christ has done is he said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. There he was talking about the civil law and the ceremonial law not the moral law. He says, you're still bound by the moral law, but you are now, uh, all these things in the civil law and especially the ceremonial law were pointers. They were pointing to me. They were pointing to me that they would ultimately be fulfilled in the person, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. So that's important for us. Sorry, that's my second aside, but uh, this this. This uh, section is really packed with theological things that we need to really grasp if we're able to uh, understand the context really well. And so what Jesus said is he, he came to fulfill the civil and ceremonial laws and the Sabbath was wrapped up in those. And so here comes, here comes the rub, right? It's like, how dare you change the regulations, Jesus, who, whoever you are, of the Sabbath law. How dare you, how dare you heal on the Sabbath day? See, they, the Jewish had, uh, had put hedges around all the laws of God. They broke them up, think of it this way, they broke them up in micro chunks to where they could um, actually, actually do it. So as they were explaining things, they said, uh, oh, you know what, you can't work, which means uh, you shouldn't uh, carry a mat 
on the day uh, of the Sabbath. So they actually wrote down and you know, under, uh, under their regulations, don't carry a mat. But however, you could wear things as clothing. So if this man, this man, if he just would have put his mat over his shoulders and walked around the temple like that, as if it was a cloak or something, they wouldn't have got onto him. But because he was picking it up and carrying it under his arm, they said, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath. You see what they've done? They've made all these tick, like nitpicky little regulations to try to explain the law to where only they could follow it, and then they could keep their thumb over all the people to where they had moral superiority over the entire nation nation of Israel. And what Jesus has come to say in all of this is he said two things. Number one, you don't even get what Sabbath is about. Sabbath is about rest and rest is found in God. And so what he's saying is he's actually saying, you know who's Lord of the Sabbath? I am. So whatever I do on the Sabbath, guess what? I don't need any of your regulations. What I do on the Sabbath is okay because I'm in charge. And look at how he explains, look at how he explains himself in, uh, in verse 17. It says that Jesus answered them after they started persecuting him and he said, my father is working till now, therefore I, I am working, I am working. You know what that means? Jesus is literally saying right there in front of all, all of the religious leaders, you think that I don't have the authority to do this. God, does he work on the Sabbath? Like, does he, does he kind of just shut it down and like stop making the stars move in the sky and the sun doing all this stuff and the seasons go? To, does he shut it down? Does he completely not work? Because in God, we move and have our being. So you know that God is still upholding the universe with the word of his power on the Sabbath. He's working. So guess what? If he's working, I'm working. You know what he's saying there? I'm God. And they knew it. They knew exactly what he was saying. And they were aghast at all of this. And they said, and they said, man, from this point on, we have to persecute this guy in order to kill him because he is making himself equal. He's making himself equal with God. And the, the important thing that I, I want to really point out to here is they were misapplying the law. They're misapplying the law and, and putting together all these regulations and easy bite-sized chunks that they could digest and swallow and kind of uh, carry and, and, and do themselves. They were missing the essence of the law. They are missing the essence of the law. How does Jesus sum up the law? In two ways. What are the two greatest commandments? Love God with all your, let's say it, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, and then what? Love Neighbor as yourself, exactly. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, he, and you know what he, he's actually saying from the law? He's like, hey, this is all about heart issues. And really what the law is demanding of you is perfection. The law is demanding that you be perfect. The law is demanding that your heart, that your heart perfectly love God, not just on the Sabbath. This is 24-7, 365. 
He says, do you understand what the law is pointing you to? It's never been a wash, a wash station for your soul. This has always been a mirror to help you know and see and understand how far you are from actually measuring up to God. And if you wanna be with him someday, if you wanna be standing in his presence, you have to be as spotless and as clean as he is because he is holy, holy, holy. And he, cease be, he ceases being holy if something as dirty and as sinful and as tainted as you and I, and as disobedience stands in his presence. So therefore, he's saying, listen guys, you're biting it, doing this all in bite-sized chunks so that you, you can follow this. You're missing the essence of the law and the essence of the law is you shall be perfect as your holy father in heaven is perfect. And what's good news for us today is that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm God and I actually understand what the law is. And what the law, law is demanding is perfection. And so what we see in, in God is this. What we see in Christ is this. Is we see, I'm coming. I'm coming. Not because you're perfect, but because you held up the mirror of the law and you saw your imperfections. And you need to recognize your desperate need of a Savior. Just like this invalid, do you recognize the desperate need of your soul? Do you recognize the desperate need of how far you actually are from him? Have you recognized that? Have you come to a point to where you, 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 you've sat down and you said, I've been trusting in things. You've been looking at things to make you okay. What is it? Is it your bank account? Or is it the idea that if your bank account was bigger, you'd be really generous and kind to those that were in need and that makes you feel okay? Is it because you are up to date with all the COVID-19 and governmental regulations? Is that what makes you feel like you're okay? Are, are you okay because you have from the very beginning followed all the CDC guidelines, followed all that the NIH has said, and you're constantly researching, you're staying on top of it? Is that why you're okay? Are you okay because your faithful guide is Ben Shapiro? And he leads you in the, in the ways of um, proper conservatism and the way that you should be thinking through the world? Are, are, are you okay because uh, you listen religiously to Joe Rogan, who is the, la you know, the, last, um, the last man to, uh, to be silenced from censorship or something? And are, are you okay because you have good stewards of your worldview and consciousness? Are you okay because you go to church? You okay because you know some Bible verses? Are you okay because you're raised in this family or that family? What, what make, at the end of the day, what makes you feel like you're okay? Because salvation comes whenever we recognize that we're trusting in something other than God. We're actually trusting in something. Maybe it's a pool. Maybe it's all these things that I just listed. But you're trusting in something that is not in God. It's not in God. In the way that you the way that you enter into this resurrection life is you understand that I gotta give up all of this. I gotta give up all of this and I gotta pursue, I gotta fall forward, fall forward on the grace that Jesus offers by extending his rest and his healing to us. You see, in the Bible Belt, there's very little difference between the saved and the not saved because we're all kind of raised in this normative culture to where uh, I, I was on a pastor's retreat this, this week and, uh, and there's several pastors that have planted in uh, more urban settings like Austin and uh, different settings like El Paso and Lehigh, Utah. And so these are settings that have kind of the, 
the, the Sunday guilt that you didn't go to church on Sunday has kind of passed away. And I know that we have a congregation that represents uh, a lot of the United States because of our, of our reach out at Shepherd. Um, but you might be saying, Cody, I don't even know what Bible Belt culture is or anything that you're talking about. But basically, let me sum it up like this. You feel a little bit of guilt every time you don't go to church. Every time those, you know, the, the doors are open on Sunday, you, you feel a little bit of guilt. But our society doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily um, there anymore. And you want to know the difference between a, a lost person and a saved person? It's this. In the Bible Belt, a lost person feels pretty good whenever they have a good day. You know, they eat their Wheaties, they walk the old lady across, across the crosswalk, they open the door, they say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, to, um, to everyone that they saw today. They're really light, they got the promotion, you know. They think that's a really, really good day. And a, and a saved person, you know what they, they do? They're constantly repenting of their good days. Let me explain. You're constantly, you're constantly repenting of all the good works that make you feel like you're okay. You see, you and I that are Christians in this room, look at me. You and I that are Christians in this room, uh, the, 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 the greatest fear of our lives is not necessarily that we're gonna um, go and dive off into this deep pool of sin, even though it's, it's ever close, it's ever close. However, the, the, the struggle for me and the struggle probably for you is whenever we have that good day, whenever we hit that, you know, that little, uh, our Bible app tells us, man, you, you got a new streak of Bible reading. And whenever you memorize another version, it's like, man, another uh, spiritual goal accomplished. Is you, what, what we do is we trust in that to make us okay with God. Have you repented of your good works in here? Are you trusting in your good works to make you okay with God? Or are you trusting in Christ, in Christ alone to make you okay with God? Because the, the difference between a lost person and a saved person is we repent of everything, even, even as C.S. Lewis says, our damnable good works. The works, the good works that we feel justified in that will damn us to hell if we trust in those things, if we trust in those things rather than the sufficient grace of God Almighty that is displayed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, don't, I, don't understand me. That doesn't mean like, Cody, you mean like we can live however we want? No, by no means. Paul was constantly misunderstood in that. By no means can we live however we want. However, the motivation, the motivation of our good works do not come by our striving to earn God's favor. We already have it because of Christ. The motivation of our good works comes because we're resting in the rest that God has provided in Christ Jesus. How do you pursue? How do you look at your pursuit of God? Are you trying to earn God's favor? Are you trying to earn God's favor? Or, or are you delighting, delighting and walking with God and enjoying him and saying, I don't have to read the Bible, I get to. I, I don't have to pray, I get to pray. He, he's listening to me. I, I get to pursue him. I get to walk with him. He's the God of the universe and he listens to me. Someone who has rebelled against him all my life. That's amazing. What's the posture of your good works? Are you trying to earn his favor or do you know you already have it and you get to just delight in him? And my hope for us today is Christian and non-Christian alike. You kind of see, you kind of see. If you're, if you're non-Christian in this room, and you might be like hanging around, you might be wondering like, why am I still hanging around? 
What's going on? Like, why, why this church thing? Why, you know, Bible Belt? Why Redeemer Church? Why did this person invite me? Why all of this? Don't you recognize that Jesus pursues us? You're here because Jesus has been in pursuit of you. You're here because Jesus has been reaching out to you. He's been trying to find you where you are needy and say, hey, turn to me, you're healed. That's, that's why you're here. And for those of us in this room, my hope that are, that are walking with God, my hope, my hope is this, is that you recognize, is that you recognize that you need to repent of all of your good works this week, as well of all of your sin. You need to repent of all the things that you think you've done so that God will be pleased with you. See, all the Christian life is repentance, even of our good works. Why? Because all of the Christian life is about Christ. He is the centerpiece of it. He's the center of it all. Let's pray.